Hello, I'm Celeste Butera, a partner at Hoffman and Barron in Syosset, Long Island, and my practice is focused on intellectual property litigation. And you're listening to IP Fridays podcast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 149 of IP Fridays. Today's interview guest is Celeste Botera, and my co-host Ken Suzanne had the pleasure to talk with her about the challenges of trademark litigation in today's proliferation of technology, for example, cyber squatting and enforcing trademarks against parties where you don't really know their identity. But before we jump into the interview, I have news for you. The USPTO has issued inventorship guidance and examples for AI-assisted inventions. And the director of the USPTO, who was also on this podcast before, she is cited saying the patent system was developed to incentivize and protect human ingenuity and the investments needed to translate that ingenuity into marketable products and solutions. And later she says, the guidance does that by embracing the use of AI and in innovation and focusing on the human contribution. The guidance can be found on the USPTO website. The Unified Patent Court has issued an update about their caseload. A total of 217 cases have been filed until the end of January 2024. And of these cases, 83 are infringement actions. 29 of these have been filed in the Munich Local Division, 17 in Düsseldorf, 11 in Mannheim. So most of the cases have been filed with German local divisions. 86 counterclaims have been filed as well and also 22 applications for provisional measures. Also, the Unified Patent Court has signed an agreement with Italy, paving the way for establishing the Central Division in Milan. On 1st of February, an agreement between Georgia and the European Patent Office has been ratified, now allowing the validation of European patents in Georgia. Now, let's jump into the interview with Celeste Butera. Our guest today on the IP Fridays podcast is Celeste Butera. Celeste is a partner with Hoffman & Barron LLC, a law firm with offices in New York, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C. Celeste is a member of the firm's intellectual property and litigation practice group and is based in their New York office. Celeste focuses her practice on litigation involving trademark, copyright, patent infringement, and other business torts, and commercial litigation on a wide variety of topics, including trademark and copyright infringement claims arising from the internet and social media in courts throughout the United States. Celeste's practice also includes representing clients in trademark proceedings before the United States Patent and Trademark Office, including trademark opposition and cancellation proceedings, and counseling clients and providing substantive presentations on all aspects of intellectual property, internet law, 
business torts, breach of contract, and related liabilities. Celeste has earned a national reputation as a successful litigator and has been involved in numerous precedent-setting and complex legal actions in courts throughout the country. She was named as a New York Super Lawyer Metro Edition in Intellectual Property and Intellectual Property Litigation for numerous years. Welcome, Celeste, to the IP Fridays podcast. Thank you, Ken. Happy to be here. Celeste, what do you see as the developing trademark concerns regarding the proliferation of technology and the Internet? Well, just about every business in America, and of course, globally, has a website. And this even transcends to small businesses. Uh, And this is truly a new and different phenomenon. Certainly, at the beginning of the Internet, we did not have this proliferation where just about every business that sells products or services now has a website. And in fact, in order to succeed, a business must have a website in these times of of technology-driven sales and commerce. So consumers search for and purchase products and services on the internet. And as a result, the most intrinsically valuable business assets are domain names and trademarks how we as consumers find a business is their domain name, their their trademark, their website. Um, Interesting statistics uh, behind what we're gonna talk about today is that 80% of Americans now shop online in some capacity. And that's an increase of 40% over the last five years. So that just puts into context really the word proliferation. It it really is our way of doing business now. And as a result, as a result, our trademark infringement has shifted from traditional infringement in the traditional marketplace to infringement on the internet through websites. Yes. Yeah, uh, the issue of shopping on the internet certainly is is increasing exponentially. And as the internet is worldwide, are there um, are there issues connected with potential infringers being located around the world? What specific and creative remedies do you think are available to address these out of country infringers? Yes, and you point out the the worldwide aspect of the internet, which is of course very important. And there was another statistic, just to put this all in context, 5.7 trillion internet dollars is derived worldwide from the internet. So again, yes, the the problem is that now infringers, as well as consumers, are worldwide, and there, there are personal jurisdiction issues. So if somebody is infringing, and we need to, uh, obtain jurisdiction over them in a court or in some other tribunal if they are not located in the United States and if they're not doing sufficient business or having sufficient contacts in the United States, there are problems with personal jurisdiction. What has happened as a result is that our laws have had to develop in light of the technological advancements and how much our center of commerce is now in internet commerce. Um, And what has happened is there's a new remedy that has been established under the Lanham Act, which is called the anti-cyber squatting 
statute and it's uh, paragraph D under the Lanham Act. And what that does is it provides an in-rem action and remedy against an infringer over whom the um, domain name or trademark owner cannot get traditional personal jurisdiction over. Mm -hmm. So the action actually allows the uh, domain name owner or trademark owner to attach the infringing domain name as property. And there are certain aspects to that in rem action that allow the owner of the trademark that's being infringed by an infringing domain name to try to obtain service through the domain name registrar of the infringing domain name. And so that's a really interesting remedy. And it's very, very helpful when um, an owner of a trademark that's being infringed cannot gain personal jurisdiction over the infringer. Mm -hmm. And if the domain name uh, registrant is located um, outside the U.S., can you use this in-rem action? Well, yes and no. So typically, if the registrar is located outside of the United States, they will have some U.S. counterpart, because as you pointed out, the internet is so much a global phenomenon that in order to really be successful, they they have to have a United States counterpart. Mm -hmm. So what happens is if they have a United States counterpart, then wherever that counterpart is located becomes the venue and you can file in that venue. So for example, if you have a registrar in Germany, but they happen to have a registrar counterpart in Virginia, uh, you can then go ahead and file in Virginia, even though the main part of the business for that registrar, and even if they're incorporated in Germany. Mm -hmm. And for those that are not internet savvy, how, how would one find out this information? Is it publicly available on the internet as to where the registrar and registrant is located? Yes, usually an internet search either through GoDaddy or Whois or any other creative searches through different registrants and registrars it is available and can be done and should be done. And that information is readily available. Okay, switching over to federal courts, can you provide some specific uh, case examples from federal courts um, uh, that have crafted and provided creative remedies for infringement? of trademarks as a result of competitor or non-competitor using a confusingly similar domain name? Sure. Um, one very interesting case um, that I like to talk about is the uh, case of Rice versus iVote.com. And I'm just going to give a quick citation in case anybody wants to look up the case. It's 2022 U.S. District Lexus. 240302. And that's out of the Eastern District of Virginia. What's interesting about this case is it touches upon all the questions that you asked, Ken. So for example, here, there was an infringing domain name, and the registrar was located in Virginia. But the owner of the infringing domain name was anonymous. So that there is that ability to um, register a domain name and not provide who the owner is. Mm -hmm. And what the court did here is relied on Rule 4N and um, also the anti-cyber squatting statute, which specifically says that if 
you make efforts to identify who the owner of the infringing domain name is through the registrar and it's anonymous or otherwise you can't obtain that information because it's just not available or otherwise difficult to obtain, making those efforts to try to find the actual identity of the registrant is enough to satisfy service provisions under the in-rem section or remedy of the anti-cybersquatting statute. So what the trademark owner did in iVote was they simply did some Whois searches and some GoDaddy searches, and they attempted to contact the registrant through GoDaddy, and each attempted to provide notice of, of the lawsuit for trademark infringement. Um, the plaintiff also proceeded in REM uh, and it actually attached the domain name. And the plaintiff also sought a creative way of alternate service, which was just to publish on the internet the lawsuit, which is very interesting. And the court approved it and also approved publication in the Washington Times in six consecutive weeks. And that was deemed to be sufficient service. Um, they obviously, the domain name holder defaulted, uh, the infringing domain name holder defaulted. And all of the relief that was requested by the plaintiff was granted. The in-rem uh, section of the anti-cybersquatting statute limits if you proceed under only the paragraph D, which is the in-rem provision of the anti-cybersquatting statute, the relief is limited to the transfer of the domain name. But in most cases, that's really all the trademark owner wants. Uh, the mm -hmm. trademark owner simply wants the infringer to stop diverting traffic from the intended trademark and domain name to the infringing domain name. So that's really a win. Um, and in addition to the NREM remedy, you know, a plaintiff can also sue for other relief, such as damages under the other provisions of the Lanham Act. So that's a, a, a really um, important and interesting case because it does show the interplay between um, the remedy, the in-rem remedy under and service problems under the anti-cybersquatting statute. Yes. You can really get creative, it sounds like, with use of the in-rem provision, you know, when you run into these difficulties connected to service. Yes, exactly. And the interesting thing, another case I would like to mention is Ideal Village, and that's 2021 U.S. District Lexus 153952. There, the plaintiff sued for copyright infringement, uh, trademark infringement, and under the cyber squatting statute. And it was over, obviously, the infringing website, but also packaging. And that's how the copyright infringement came in. Um, it was a um, default situation. And um, the court awarded statutory damages there of $600,000. The court also um, awarded the transfer of the domain name. And this is what's interesting about the Ideal Village case. If the Ideal Village case combined the statutory award under the other provisions of the Lanham Act for $600,000 and also proceeded in REM, under Section D of the anti-cybersquatting statute under the Lanham Act, 
the plaintiff would have had the panoply of all revisions, of all um, awards and all remedies there under the statute. So not only would the plaintiff have gotten uh, statutory damages, but also transfer of the website. What's interesting about the Ideal Village case is that under the anti-cyber squatting statute, the plaintiff did not proceed in REM, but rather simply proceeded under the straight damages provisions of the anti-cyber squatting statute. And the court found that it could not enjoin the service provider. The court found it could not mandate that the service provider transfer the domain name, but had the plaintiff coupled its statutory damages request for relief under the typical Lanham Act remedies, along with the in-rem remedy under the Section D of the anti-cyber squatting statute, that plaintiff would have indeed been able to have the court order that the registrar transfer the domain name to the plaintiff. So it's very important to understand all of the remedies under the Lanham Act and how each one, in light of this proliferation of the internet, provides different remedies, different ways of seeking the relief in a very creative way when you have somebody that is either, you don't have personal jurisdiction over them, they're not uh, going to respond to the complaint, they're not, you're not going to be able to have the court order them to transfer the domain name because they're not responding. So they're not even responding to the to the action, they're certainly not going to comply with the court order. So it's very important to know and be creative in determining which remedy to seek, how to plead your case, and then how to seek alternate ways of service under each of the statutory provisions that are at play. Yes, definitely. Well said. Now, Celeste, do you have an example of a case that you handled that utilized these remedies and you know creative solutions to jurisdiction or service problems? Yes. So just recently, and I can't uh, right now tell you the name of the case because it, it we're still in the middle of it. And so I don't want to disclose we're actually trying to uh, execute on some assets after obtaining default judgment. But we had a um, infringer uh, against our client's domain name. They actually put an S at the end of our client's domain name and we're using an identical domain name to our client's trademark and domain name. And they were di diverting customers and consumers uh, from our client. And so we we sued under the Lanham Act for trademark infringement. We also sued under the anti-cyber squatting statute, not in REM, um, because we, we felt that we could get jurisdiction that was it was not a foreign company. It was a domestic company and there was a pretty large uh, domestic presence and we felt we could get jurisdiction. Well, as many times as we tried to serve the defendant, we could not. Apparently, uh, there was many things being shifted around. The business was conducted essentially on the internet out of no, out of no brick and mortar location. So it became quite difficult and to serve uh, the defendant and and quite frankly the defendant seemed to be evading process. So we requested that the court allow us after many attempts obviously by traditional service means and documenting those efforts. We requested that we be permitted to serve the defendant by email. Mm 
The defendant had a business email that it posted on the internet as part of the website. And we informed the court, showed the court how this is how this business was being conducted. And the court allowed us to serve by email everything, the complaint, any orders, uh, everything in the case could be served by email. And that's how we proceeded. The defendant never showed up, never defended the action. And at the end of the day, we ended up obtaining a default judgment and getting damages and injunctive relief, including an, an injunction ordering the registrar to transfer the domain name to our client immediately. Wow. wow, that's really interesting. It's important to keep these creative remedies in mind, you know, when you're trying to pursue a defendant. Absolutely. One more question for you, or actually two more questions for you, Celeste. First is, how can businesses keep watch for trademark infringement through use of a confusingly similar domain name? What tools are available? So it's important to always monitor the internet, always do searches for your domain name and see what's being turned up. Always do Google searches um, and also other internet uh, searches on, on other search engines. It's also important to pre, you know, check as as often as possible similar names or misspellings or additional letters added to the domain name. Uh, by GoDaddy. Isn't that often called typo squatting? Exactly, typo squatting, and it happens so often. And in fact, that was the subject of the case that we handled that I just talked about. And you can do that through searching the actual registrars. There's, you know, you can turn up a list of all the registrars that exist and you can go in and search whenever you want, however often you want. And that will turn up um, many instances if they exist of the infringement. And if there is uh, infringement, it's going to be on the internet more times than not. And so those general internet searches will also turn up the, in the infringement. So it, it is important to be diligent and to just take it upon your self and your businesses due diligence to go out and do those searches both on the internet and through the registrars. Excellent information and guidance, Celeste. Celeste, how can listeners get in touch with you if they want to chat with you further? Uh, yes. So the best way is uh, through our uh, law firm, of course, and through the phone numbers listed. I think you've provided those, right, Ken? Mm -hmm. And then I would also give my cell number, but even the office number rings right at my cell number. But my cell number is 631-786-3132. Okay, and listeners can get in touch with you if they want to learn further. Plus, thank you so much for spending time with us today on the IP Fridays podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Ken. It was great speaking with you. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. 
If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.